of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. Stay connected and never miss a beat with AT&T. Our reliable network covers more roads than any other carrier, ensuring you're always in the loop. Whether it's tournament upsets, buzzer beaters, or social media buzz, stay up to date. Don't let the action pass you by. Check if you're eligible for a free trial of in-car Wi-Fi at att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi. And keep the madness going. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. We're almost back from vacation, but we still have a great show for you today. Wall Street Journal Chief Foreign Affairs Correspondent Yaroslav Trofimov joins us to talk about his new book, Our Enemies Will Vanish, The Russian Invasion and Ukraine's War on Independence. But first, we have NBC's Matt Dixon to tell us all about his new book, Swamp Monsters, Trump versus DeSantis. Welcome, Matt. Well, thank you very much. You are a Florida guy, like Rick Wilson, but probably don't curse as much. But you do live in Tallahassee. I have hair, too. (laughs) We don't cast aspersion. It was observational, not a dispersion. (laughs) Is it a dispersion? I think it's an aspersion. All right. So the book is called Swamp Monsters. Talk to me about Ron DeSantis. One of the most interesting things about him is... To some degree, he became better known nationally and he made people started to see sort of this crotchety guy, this sort of charmless battering ram of a man who just kind of couldn't really make human connections. It was interesting because I, I covered, gosh, I, I lived in Jacksonville when he was in Congress. So I've covered him since his congressional days. And it was sort of interesting to watch the rest of the world see what, what I had seen for a very long time. And the rambling response to your question is a lot of the stereotypes about him, a lot of the things that people think they think are kind of right. 
And I, I think that's kind of what's most notable about him. He, he wears that on his sleeve and, and sort of all the personality quirks and the, you know, rubbing of the snot. Did you think when you started this book, oh, this fucking guy is not going to be the nominee, like not even close? Or did you think maybe this will work? No, I thought, I mean, covering the his rise post-pandemic and the, the midterm re-elections, I didn't know, you know, I, I wasn't in the, you know, I 100% think he's going to be the nominee, but with, you know, he's speaks pretty well to the base, at least before Trump got back in. He knows how right. to language. He knows the issues. I definitely did not anticipate he was going to underperform expectations the way he has. So I, I, I didn't think he was a cinch for the nomination, but I thought in a primary environment, he was going to be a pretty good candidate. Everyone from the National Review, all those guys who already really hate me, and I would like to add have hated my grandfather and hated my mother. I come by that hatred very honestly, but that crew has always hated me, and they were so fucking pissed at me because they had this fantasy that Ron DeSantis was going to do like a nice light fascism, all the authoritarianism, none of the unforced errors. And I saw him and I was like, holy fuck, if this guy becomes a nominee, we're in a lot of trouble because he is actually pretty smart and could really, I mean, he's very smart. Well, without question, he's very smart. But I do think one of the slight myths about him is this idea that he's some great administrator or or a, a more competent version of Trump in the sense that... Ooh, say more. This is interesting to me. So many of the pieces of legislation, his his biggest pieces of legislation have ended up in court and found unconstitutional by courts. His his administration from a staffing standpoint has, has been a bit of a mess. He's fired every campaign team he's ever had. And you can see some of the stuff going on with the the super PAC and the campaign staff is, is, is that doesn't go as well. So has always had staffing issues. There's always been sort of a palace intrigue, circular firing squad. Some of his biggest sort of policy priorities that he talks about to this day while running for president, just scratch a little below, below the surface and read a couple court opinions. A lot of them didn't really sort of pan out the way that the initial headline did. Are you talking about don't say gay or are you talking about something else? One, some of them, it should be noted still going through the courts. That bill, and there's been several sort of culture war themed bills as he he grows through the sort of national Republican ecosystem that he got a lot of attention for, did big splashy press releases and all sorts of stuff. And, and you know, $20 million in legal fees later, they're still either tied up in the courts or or have, have been tossed. So I think there is some mythology around Ron DeSantis that he's sort of bureaucratic but I mean, he's still more competent than Trump, not saying much, but. Yeah, right. But I, I do think there's a gray area there, right? Like it's not he's either Donald Trump or this, you know, wonderful administrator. There's a space in between. And that's what he occupies. That's, I think, a really good point. And the truth is being better than Donald Trump at anything does not make you good at something. I want to talk to you about Pershaw. Christina Pershaw. What's his story there? She's the big lipped Twitter kind of monster that is a part of uh, DeSantis' world. But I feel like I've never encountered a presidential candidate who has sort of a handler like that. I think how you describe her there, the, how, how she acts on social media is correct. But the tense is important here. She was that. If you've noticed her, her Twitter persona is essentially just she's a factory of retweets at this point. The, the personality, the, the the personal attacks, the things that defined her as she was really sort of coming on the scene are largely gone. I, I think she's pretty much sidelined at this point. And I think uh, as, as Ron DeSantis does Morning Joe, you know, three times a week now, I think the general idea of their premise that corporate media has sort of lost its power and that there's going to be this rise of this new sort of 
far-right attack media ecosystem is largely falling flat. And we, we've sort of seen that. I mean, just um, just on on Tuesday morning, I think it was Tuesday morning or, or Monday night, there was a, some Tucker Carlson interview where he sort of trashed the DeSantis press handlers and the, the social people. And it, it to me, it felt like sort of the, the final nail in the coffin of that sort of press strategy, because DeSantis is doing way more mainstream stuff. His sort of biggest, biggest it is interesting they had they had decided they weren't going to engage with the mainstream media because they didn't need it because they had everything they wanted in their crazy far right world and then they just changed their mind. It shocked the system initially when it first came on the scene. So we were all like, "Oh my gosh!" They were getting you know anytime DeSantis said a negative story, they would get headlines in conservative media outlets and sometimes up to Fox News about the reporter. The attacks were very personal, but it quickly became white noise. What they swung at every pitch. So it became easier and easier to ignore. And, and not to mention the sort of sophomore, like the the lameness of their jokes, the uh, I'm sorry this is happening to you sort of insults that sort of populate that ecosystem are just dumb. They flooded the zone and it was days of trolls and your your mentions. But eventually it's just like, wow, this is this is sort of an unimpressive attack that's that's become easy to ignore. Yeah, it is interesting that they out trumped themselves a little bit, right? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, Trump came, you know, coined the term fake news or, or really made it popular. And I think the DeSantis folks wanted to take that to, to next logical extension. And it just wasn't strategically smart, one. And two, I don't think they're quite as good at it. Right. Ultimately, like the thing I'm always struck by with it is that DeSantis had all these like policies. <laughs> like there was an interview I recently saw him on when he was on Morning Joe, Mika asked him about the sort of anti-democratic policies of Trump. And DeSantis was like, they're not anti-democratic enough. I think he said something to the effect of, I don't think he could go as far as he could have with, with the authority he's granted under the Constitution. And he, he specifically pivoted to some the, the quote, nonviolent January 6th folks. And you know, I, I think I, I think I know what, what interview you're talking about. And yeah. So I don't I was asked, I forget where, but an, on some interview about how DeSantis tries to toe that line or he tries to navigate those waters. And my answer was, well, he's really not. I mean, he's, he's trying to, you know, it's not like he shies away from from some of the the things we're talking about in any real or material way. He leans into them and says, hey, we can we can go further under the Constitution. And if someone can't, if someone says we can't, let's go to court. And that's kind of what, what his administration in Florida has been for a long time. I mean, kind of incredible, right? Florida's actually not as red. Like, he won by a lot, but part of that was because he was running against the world's worst politician who had been a Republican, and also because the party fell apart, right? Yep. Even, I mean, even if you think Charlie Crist individually is a bad politician, the Democrat ran against DeSantis, that even there was no money that National Democrats completely gave up. And he had been a Republican. I mean, you, it was like 10 days ago. I mean, it was a complete shit show. The number that always jumps out at me in the the previous midterm, so I guess it would have been 2018, the National Democratic Organizations, that constellation spent about 60 million in Florida. They spent about two in 2022. So I don't think there's a way to underscore a 20 point win in Florida. And, and I actually think DeSantis deserves some credit for that just because it's so big in a state for no recounts and in super. So he he had an impressive 2022, and it should have been a good springboard into, you know, a little more momentum headed into his presidential race. And it just 
what I think is kind of mind boggling is how quickly that massive victory, America's governor, all that stuff fell flat as soon as the, the rubber met the road on the presidential cycle. Yeah. I mean, I also think running on COVID when COVID is not the central, right? Like, I mean, the whole idea is going to run and how well he did, which really he didn't, but whatever, for a pandemic that isn't what people are focused on anymore. I think is also interesting. He only really started to lean into it once desperation mode kicked in. I mean, when he started with, you know, $200 million budgets for a super PAC and all this, this crazy America, this momentum, he wouldn't do any of the Fauci stuff. He didn't do the vaccine stuff. He didn't attack Trump at all. So he's now really running on COVID and, and sort of his record during the height of the pandemic that which conservatives like. But it, it came much later in the game when the poll numbers were already, you know, headed in the wrong direction for him. It, it's not like he opened up with this stuff. It, it became more apparent when he knew he he was in trouble. The thing that I think is so medieval about him is his anti-gay stuff. Like that stuff is sort of like out of another century. The chair of his Republican Party of Florida is uh, in his own sex scandal that involves his wife with another woman. So I, I think that. So it's, it's important to note that she, that the, the wife in there is accused of no wrongdoing, but the hypocrisy aspect of that is, is starting to get a lot of attention. You're certainly right. And the, one of the things about DeSantis, I do think he believes the things he talks about and pushes. I do. There are some politicians who are, are much more performative and, and want to speak to a political base or a political supporters in a way that they think works best. I do think DeSantis has, has you know, for, for better or worse, and not necessarily the defense of, of the positions, but he believes the stuff we're talking, he's talking about and advocates. You think he really does hate gay people? What else? I mean, he, he certainly pushed a lot of pieces of legislation and a lot of policy proposals that that community does not like. And my point was that I actually think he believes these things. It's not performative to him. No, I think he does genuinely suck. But it is interesting, and I also think he is a terrible bigot. But it is interesting to me, like, in the year 2023, we have a guy who's like, if you teach kids about being gay, they'll be gay. When there's been... So many unintended consequences when they sort of talk about these pieces of legislation. They don't say gay bill, for instance. I mean, it obviously got a ton of pushback, but they, they said it was just going to be in classrooms up to third grade. Right. But they were totally lying, right? Because then immediately it's now it's in high school. They even formalized it. The the board that oversees state college is largely appointed by DeSantis formally expanded it to, to seventh grade. So even the, there's there was informal ripple effects from that. But even sort of the administrative state, dare I say that Florida's deep state expanded that law as opponents of it feared. I thought it was so interesting with the Moms for Liberty. So here she is, Bridget Ziegler, involved in, a, again, being in a menage is not against the law, in case anyone's wondering, nor is being married to a guy who may or may not, but is certainly very, is accused of raping a woman. But it is interesting to me, you know, she did send her kids to private school while being on the school board. So this level of, you know, calling calling everyone a groomer and then actually being married to a, or accused rapist is pretty interesting stuff. Well, it was also acknowledged. I mean, she's openly talked about the fact that she had a helping hand in, in craft the don't say gay legislation. So the criminal investigation aside, there's a whole can of worms about hypocrisy that I think is getting a lot of attention right now and, and probably should. One of the other things that Florida has done is they have, you know, so you can't teach about sexuality, but you also can't 
get an abortion, right? I mean, he had a more moderate stance on abortion. He changed it, right? Let's talk about DeSantis. Yeah, well, and also I I think there is some self-realization on his part that it's not popular because he didn't get a ton of attention at the time and maybe should is when he signed Florida's six-week abortion ban, he did it, which is very rare for him, 11.30 at night in his office. Usually the bills, I mean, DeSantis is well known for having huge, splashy press conferences when he does bill signings or things of that nature. And this was done, you know, in the, the darkness of night in his office. So I think there were some clear signals there that he knew, you know, I think he wanted to sign it. I, I think he believes in it, but he realized what he was doing wasn't wasn't going to be helpful for him. But he felt he had to do it to win the nomination, right? Well, and, and I also think, like I had mentioned earlier about he believes in the stuff he does. I do think he believes in the stuff right, at a personal level. As you're preparing to run for president in a Republican primary, you can't be a vetoing abortion bills. Let's get away from the insane sane religious zealotism, 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 I've just made up the word, and talk about the lifts. So he's wearing these cowboy boots. He's obviously not a hugely tall guy. He's wearing the cowboy boots. Does he just think nobody's going to notice? I mean, like some of these unforced errors seem like they just, he just never occupied Earth One. Well, there is a thing, and, and maybe this is like just a backwoods Tallahassee thing, but like suits and cowboy boots like is a thing that it happens here with some degree of regularity. It's not like a unique fashion sense. And a lot of the governor's staff also wear them. But where I think the problem is, is where he's got like the, the Wicked Wish of the West look where the like the boots are actually sort of like curling up and it's very clear. This <laughs> is a normal look. So where with the, the gator boots, especially gators in Florida, the gator boots with the suit, I will say, at least here, isn't like that rare of a look. I just think that was new for a lot of people, you know, outside of Florida. But the way he wears them is is getting some attention in a way that I don't think he anticipated. And it's because it's clear, uh, it's clear those feet aren't going all the way to the end. <laughs> so what's next for Ron DeSantis? He is de-term limited. Where do you think this goes? I think he would still, in his mind, like to run for president again one day. The I think the big question moving forward is going to be is, you know, clearly the the sort of MAGA Trump crowd still controls the Republican base. And to what degree has he damaged himself and his name with with those voters, if it's possible for him to run again? So I think those are going to have to be questions he's going to have to hash out. Uh, He's still got uh, three legislative sessions left here in Florida and then perhaps a, a long four years to figure it out. People like to speculate on the idea that Casey may run for governor. Is that just completely stupid or is that like a real thing? I think it's a real thing. I've always thought it would more be more likely she'd run for U.S. Senate simply because, and this is just ramp speculation because, you know, it's Tallahassee versus D.C. Well, the, the conversation about it has been out there for quite some time, especially here. So I'm not just speculating, you know, without there being some basis for it, but she, she would rather be in D.C. than Tallahassee. But also, I, I think most people here, I mean, I've seen plenty of her speeches and whatever the, the contents of the speech aside, she's got more political talent than her husband. Right. That's what everybody says. I kind of see it that way as well. But, you know, she's been polled many, many times and in potential 2026 will be the next gubernatorial race here. And she does quite well with Republicans. So I don't know if it's much more than just sort of speculation and, and sort of, you know, chatter among, you know, political observers at this point. I think it could happen. And I, I certainly don't think it's unrealistic to, to talk about or think that it might be a reality. I hate that. Thank you so much. I hope you'll come back. I hope you have me back. And I, I enjoyed it. I 
I sleep better at night knowing my family is protected if something ever happens to me since I was able to compare plans very easily at PolicyGenius.com. With PolicyGenius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using PolicyGenius. Head to PolicyGenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quote and see how much you could save. That's PolicyGenius.com. Hey guys, it's Ray from the Bobby Bone Show here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Let's go! Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain from the road to the hills to the trails all over. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating, up to eight passengers, yeah. And with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer. Check out amazing national sales event deals on RAV4s, Highlanders, and more. Visit buyatoyota.com. That's buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less, like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change and certain restrictions may apply. Yaroslav Trofimov is the chief foreign affairs correspondent at the Wall Street Journal and author of Our Enemies Will Vanish, The Russian Invasion and Ukraine's War on Independence. 
Welcome to Fast Politics, Yaroslav. Hi. Hi. Great to be on the show. Really excited to have you. You are the chief foreign affairs correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. And also, we both were finalists for the Pulitzer Prize. Just kidding. No, I was not. That's hilarious because... No, never. So let's talk about what it's like right now in Ukraine. Well, you know, the war is almost uh, two years old by now. And the miracle is that Ukraine has not collapsed. Ukraine has fought back. Ukraine reclaimed about half of the land that Russia originally conquered. And considering the disparity in you know the size and the sheer military power of the two nations, it's a very unexpected outcome. You know, if you remember what was happening in the first days of the war, everyone was giving up Ukraine for dead, including the U.S. And it hasn't died. Yes, you know, there are setbacks. And yes, of course, the, the war is tough and, you know, the mounting casualties and the reluctance of Western countries such as the U.S. to provide more funding because of internal politics is obviously contributing to the toll. But uh, Ukraine is resisting and Russia has not been able to advance. Tell me what you think. This has been such a weird war in a lot of ways, like things have have not happened in the way that it's been predicted again and again. Is that really because of the strength of the Ukrainian people or is there more to this story? Well, you know, this has been a really yo-yo war, not so much in terms of the actual war as in terms of public perceptions. So one day it was Ukraine is doomed. Next day, Russia is weak and uh, is in a colossus and clay feet is going to collapse. Then, oh no, well, Russia can still fight. And then again, so it's been kind of like this for two years. People have dramatically underestimated Ukraine, its ability to resist, its ability to function in society, and its ability to fight. People have also, at first, overestimated Russian military might and the strength of the great Russian army. But then they made the other mistake and they, you know, they just decided that the Russian army is crumbling. And obviously the Russians also learned from their mistakes and they have regrouped and they used the time that they had from summer 2022 until the summer of 2023 to regroup, to begin, to prepare. And by the time Ukrainians finally received Western tanks, you know, Bradley, Strikers, Leopards, and all the other gear that had been asking for for more than a year for their summer offensive in 2023, you know, the Russians were ready. And there was a lot more of them because Putin had mobilized hundreds of thousands of uh, reservists. But part of what's happening is that the Russians are not great fighters, right? I mean, Russia itself is having its own sort of come to Jesus moment with the war, right? Well, I mean, Russians are not bad fighters. Obviously, what we have seen in this war is that the Russians are ready to go and die. Putin is sending hundreds of thousands to this meat grinder, and there has been little resistance, and people just obey and go and go in these massive waves that eventually achieve a result. You know, they did take the city of Bakhmut in early 2023, you know, at the cost of tens of thousands of people, but they did take it. So obviously, uh, the Russians have issues with command and control, they have issues with sort of modern tactics, but, you know, there is a lot of them. It's a very big army of a very big country. And they have managed to rebuild the military industries and to produce ammunition uh, on a scale that the West has not been able to do. Right. I mean, what is it like being on the ground? You've covered a lot of wars. I mean, is this different? I feel like there's a sense in which you are in Europe and that in itself is radically different than other wars. Well, yeah, I've covered the wars all my professional life, you know, in Iraq in 2003, in Afghanistan for many years, you know, Liberia, you name it. And some wars in Europe, in the Balkans, or in Georgia in 2008. 
But, you know, I was born in Ukraine. You know, I grew up in Kiev. My family's been there for generations. And so obviously seeing invading armies bombard the streets where you, you know, you have childhood memories is completely different on the sort of psychological level. You know, it, it's infuriating. You know, how dare they? You know, like I had my first kiss in this park and I missed out the But also in a way it was much simpler because most of the wars I've covered have many layers of complexity and, you know, neither side is... 100% in the right, usually. Whereas here, it was a very clear-cut moral case. You know, Ukraine hadn't done anything to merit this. It was invaded by Putin because of his sheer ideas of imperial conquest and world domination. And Ukraine was resisting morally, you know, without, you know, killing civilians, without breaking the international humanitarian law and using pretty much its own resources in the first few months. In a way, it was a very black and white war. It still is compared to many other conflicts we're seeing now. Yeah, it is very black and white, right? There's a bad guy, which it's so, in some ways, it's so different in a way because with what's happening with Israel and Palestine, like, it's not the same. It's not as cut and dry, right? I mean, there's much more nuance in that war wars there is in this one. Can you sort of explain to our listeners what the story is between what happened with Putin and his and that militia group that was part of the army and then he killed the head of it? And can you just sort of explain if that did anything or affected anything in the war? Well, it certainly did uh, because Wagner, as this you know, mercenary group is known, it was the uh, most efficient part of the Russian military. You know, after the Russians were routed around Kiev in the first weeks of the war, the only area where they could advance in Donbass was the area where Wagner was operating. And, you know, and they brought these people from Syria, from Africa. They are all experienced, had basically recruited the best and the brightest in the regular Russian military and paid them a lot of money and had a lot of resources. And then they tried for almost a year to take the city of Bakhmut. They did take it and they lost, according to uh, Evgeny Prigozhin, the leader of Wagner, you know, upwards of 30,000 men. So pretty much they lost everything. And that that's really caused this attempt at a putsch, after which, you know, Putin survived. Wagner was disbanded, Prigozhin died in a mysterious plane crash. Bottom line is that no longer exists as a credible military force and Ukraine doesn't have to fear it. Right. Do you think that Prigozhin would have otherwise sort of taken over for Putin? I mean, do you think he was making a play that way? Well, he was making a play, but I don't think he was a man who thought things through necessarily. Okay. He was himself traumatized by spending, you know, weeks, months on a bombardment in Bakhmut. He didn't seem to have a clear plan and he was counting on support within the Russian military that didn't come through at the end. But what he spoke about, the ideas he voiced, are ideas that are shared by many in the Russian military. And he was complaining about how the war was not waged in a correct way. It hadn't been prepared and it was pointless, he said. In his very last speech before the uh, attempted putsch, he said that Zelensky was offering us peace and Putin could have just come down from the Olympus and talked, but Putin refused to talk to, to Zelensky up until the invasion. Right. It feels like Putin has that this has really tested his I don't even want to say presidency because he's not really a president, but has threatened his rule in a way other events haven't. Do you think that's right? And if so, can you talk about that? Well, I mean, what happened is that, you know, the war definitely backfires in Putin. The war is painful for the Russian side of the Russian economy. And the war, everybody acknowledges in Russia and didn't go to plan. I mean, the plan was to take key countries. 
And so now he's stuck with it. He's stuck with the war. He's stuck with the uh, mounting death toll. You know, hundreds of thousands of Russian soldiers uh, were killed or maimed on the battlefield, and you know, many more will be in coming month. And so, you know, he's in a way a hostage of the situation because he cannot end the war without losing face and perhaps losing power. And so there we are in this. And, you know, his goals in the war haven't changed. You know, he still wants to take all of Ukraine and maybe march forward. And he's banking on the fact that the U.S. and other Western nations will tire of supporting Ukraine militarily and financially, and he will prevail. And it's not a completely unrealistic uh, line of thinking, especially if President Trump wins elections in the U.S. And, you know, he hasn't indicated great enthusiasm for spending hundreds of billions of dollars on Ukraine. It feels very much like the Republican Party is going to work quite hard to make sure that Ukraine doesn't get any money. Are Europeans willing to backstop it? It feels like geographically, if Putin rolls through Ukraine, Poland is next, and this is a much bigger danger to Europe. I mean, certainly a danger to all of us, but I mean, do you think that Europe will backstop some of this? Can they? Are they even capable? Well, I mean, first of all, I mean, let's see what happens with the Republican Party. Uh, you know, they're still negotiating some sort of package that includes border security. You know, the Republicans in the Senate for sure haven't abandoned Ukraine just yet. If things do collapse and negotiations shouldn't stand it anywhere and U.S. money is not forthcoming. Europe, of course, is trying to step in and especially the Germans because they view this as a direct threat to their own national security. You know, they don't have an ocean between them and Russia. But uh, the issue is capacity. You know, most of the military aid coming uh, from the U.S. is coming from the U.S. because the U.S. has the stockpiles of ammunition, fighting vehicles, tanks, and the industries that make all that stuff that blows up. Uh, the Europeans don't. It will take them a few years to build up that capacity. So that is the big bottleneck there. Right, exactly. I mean, doesn't it seem strange to you that you have one political party that has turned so radically? I mean, isn't it sort of surprising to you? Because like I grew up with a Republican Party that was much more interested in nation building, if nothing else. Well, I mean, I guess on one hand, you do have the blowback from all these experiments in Iraq and elsewhere that didn't go exactly to plan. But on the other hand, let's also look at reality. Not the entire Republican Party is anti-Ukrainian. They have very loud voices on the fringes, but uh, Republican leaders in the House and in the Senate still say they will not allow Putin to win, they will support Ukraine. At least verbally, the support is still there. So let's see if it translates into votes uh, in the coming weeks and months. You were in Afghanistan. You covered that Taliban takeover. That sort of held up as when the shit goes really wrong. And Zelensky is held up as sort of the leader when things go right. Do you think that's true or do you think that's a big oversimplification? And can you explain to us a little bit about that? Well, you know, I was in Kabul on the day Kabul fell and it was very sudden. You know, the night before the Afghan president, Ashraf Ghani, inspected the troops, they were already defended. And by noon, he was in a helicopter flying away and the city just collapsed in front of my eyes. The Taliban were in my hotel by the afternoon. So, well, and I was in Kiev when the war began. And my fear then was, you know, what if Zelensky decides to do the same? What if he decides to fly away? And he was offered, you know, like poor leaders were calling him and telling, you know, come to London, set up a government in exile. And he said no. And that's why Ukraine held. And that courage of refusing to think about his own personal safety and thinking about the country was a very big element of why Ukraine still stands as a sovereign nation. I think the big difference with 
between Afghanistan and Ukraine is that in Afghanistan it was a civil war. It was a civil war. The Taliban are representative of a large proportion of the Afghan people, not the majority necessarily, but still a significant part of the population. And the government was seen as an instrument of the foreign invaders. In Ukraine, it's the opposite. You know, you have a government that was elected. You know, Zelensky got more than 75% of the vote uh, facing a foreign invasion. And the Americans were nowhere to be seen when the war started. If you remember, the SMC was closed. All personnel were withdrawn from Kiev. And there was very little American military aid coming at the time. You know, Ukraine fought for its independence in the first month of the war using largely its own weapons, Soviet standard weapons. Right. I just want to get back to Afghanistan for a second. Do you think that there were failures that America could have seen earlier with Afghanistan? I mean, I've read so much coverage about it. It just feels like we don't get the whole story with Afghanistan. Well, I mean, Afghanistan is a very long complex. The U.S. was there two decades. If you were to ask me what was the main failure, I think the main failure was in the very beginning after the U.S. got rid of al-Qaeda in Afghanistan and got rid of the Taliban regime, the Taliban asked to be included in some sort of, you know, future unity system. And President Karzai was backing that. But instead, the U.S. decided to go after them and, you know, detain whatever Taliban they could find and send them to Guantanamo Bay. And that really gave birth to insurgency that doomed the entire nation building effort because you could really exclude this, you know, significant political force from the future of the country. We don't have that problem in Ukraine. Yeah. So interesting. We're out of time, but I really appreciate you and I hope we can talk again. Absolutely. It was great to talk to you. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable. Got menopause? We've got you. Hi, Jackie here, founder of ExoJackie. Feel supported throughout your menopause journey and beyond with our organic protein powders and symptom relief boosts. Formulated to keep bones and muscles strong, ExoJackie products help reduce bloating, hot flashes, and weight gain. Enjoy 20% off with promo code EXOPODCAST. Shop now at exojacqui.com. Made for women by women. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, 
safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity.